It's a joy to be together today. When I was a kid, I had a propensity for breaking windows. Um, it was something of a gift. It wasn't necessarily appreciated in the family, but um, I remember, you know, times like mom would say, how did that window get broken? And you have this choice in that moment. Do you just straight up admit it or what window? Well, the one by where you were playing basketball. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and cat's out of the bag, so you might as well admit it. But in that initial thing, how happy do you think she was when I'm in denial or lying about it? On a scale of 1 to 10, it's probably like a minus 2, right? Just none of us feels joy when, confront, when we confront someone and they lie or deny. It's just no good. If the next step in some ways is to go, oh, yeah, I did that, sorry, you know, that's get me off the hook, sorry, right? I'm doing what I know I'm supposed to do. But again, on a scale of 1 to 10, that really doesn't bring much satisfaction. The next level might be I broke the window, I'm sorry, now can I go play again? And again, that, that sorrow probably isn't at the depth that a parent is hoping for, right? Eventually, they would hope to hear you say, you know, I broke the window. I'm, I'm sorry about that. I won't play there anymore. You know, I'll go find somewhere else. You know, it's a change of direction and behavior. And you, but it, it's like, we walk through levels of that, and I want to suggest to you that we do that in the Lord as well. Some years ago, I had an experience where I walked right up to the edge of sin, and I was debating whether I could pull it off or not. I was debating whether or what the ramifications would be. I was, you know, and eventually did not act it out, but it certainly was in my head and layers like that. Well, that memory kept coming back to me, and I go, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I did not do this. Yeah, but you <laughs> took delight in that memory, and you, you know, you were chasing this. You just stopped short of the actual deed. And uh, again, that apology was kind of at a low level. And then it would, the memory came back again, and I'm going, I thought we dealt with this. It's like, did you speak out against this in the moment? Did you declare this is evil? No. That would have been better, Right? And then there comes a moment of going, do you actually abhor what 
that situation would have been. And as you walk through these things, it's like, why? Why does that keep coming back up? And I want to suggest to you that God is bringing us into holiness even with our memories and, in a sense, correcting mindsets over what's been. And so there are times when it's important to revisit things and, in a sense, bring that apology up a few notches, you know, where it's done appropriately. And it's not just trying to get off the hook. It's not in denial. It's not refusing to embrace that this was wrong, but it's saying, yeah, I, I know what purity in God is and holiness is, and this is how I want to live now. And I, I regret having walked down that path. Um, where I'm going with this is I, I want to, I, in connections, we were looking at James 4, and I got into something that just kept chewing on me for the last two weeks. And, and so I want to present some of that idea James was known as the brother of Jesus in tradition, and yet he doesn't claim that when he's writing the book. He calls himself a servant of Christ. So he is, he's not talking about family rights. He's just, he's, he is a servant of Jesus. And he has embraced the message of Jesus. So when we get into things like James chapter 4, and he's talking about quarreling and fighting and arguing. He calls it murder. Remember when Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you know, if you call somebody a fool, that's the same as committing murder. Jesus expanded those definitions way beyond what we were used to looking at, and we're going, as long as I haven't done the deed of killing somebody, I'm okay. And Jesus is going, no, there's more to it than that. And, you know, then he also took on the thing of adultery, and he said, you know, if you've lusted after a woman with your eyes, he says, or in your heart, that's the same as committing adultery. And, and again, Jesus was expanding that. So when James takes this on and he goes, Adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world means hostility toward God? He is, in a sense, taking that expanded term and saying, yeah, when we step into the things of the world and we're embracing that, he says, that's a form of adultery with God. Wait a minute, that's kind of a negative term. Can we tone it down a bit? But this is... What James was saying, this is what the early church had embraced. And so they're, they're raising the bar rather than lowering it. And, and rather than just looking to get by, they're, they're raising it up and saying, this is the best of what needs to be and, and how we can live in the Lord. Now, what caught my attention in this is that I think he's chewing on this idea for the next number of verses and I'd never seen this before because um, he will use some other terms, and I thought in some ways it's like it's a disjointed next topic, next topic, next topic, let's quick get them all done. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that, but I also think that when, when you're talking about things like adultery, let's take the, the uh, levels of apology 
right? Oh, I'm sorry you interpreted that way. It's not really an apology. Or the next level of sorry. Or then there's the, this won't happen again. And there's the emotional side of being willing, in a sense, to carry the depth of that in sorrow. Um, When you're in a marital relationship and you've done something that wounds the other, sometimes it's real easy to say, I'm sorry, you know, when challenged. And mean it, but if that wound has gone deep into the emotion of the other, and all they get is this flat, emotionless sorry, it doesn't necessarily take care of the situation. Why is that? Because they were feeling it with depth, and it was, it was a devastating blow, and you're kind of functioning at the level, yeah, that was wrong, I'm sorry, can we get on with life? You're slowing me down from where I'm wanting to go, and you know this is kind of a messy thing. And there's different layers. It's like, you know, it's, at times it's almost like, okay, you've, you've done an offense, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry you saw it that way. Or I'm sorry that, uh, that I, yeah, I, I must have forgot. And again, it's just adults playing the kid games. You know, where... If you've wounded someone deeply, then it's important to get to the place of disgust over that, but also a, a, uh, an anguish, so to speak, of heart that takes it to the depths and says, this relationship is more precious than anything else to me, and I want it to continue, so I will desist from doing this kind of behavior and I want you to, if you will, receive me back. Let's walk into this passage. Whoever decides to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. You can't have it both ways. Or do you think the scripture means nothing when it says the Spirit of God caused us to live with caused to live within us an envious yearning? And there's different interpretations of this particular verse, whether it's like God is envious of our affection or whether we have a tendency to wander. And quite honestly, I'm not sure which one's the appropriate interpretation. But say, what if in the Lord, and treating it like a marriage relationship, what if it is the thing of we tend to have a wandering eye? Married, but then I'm also looking around and checking people out. It's not healthy. And that there is a challenge in regard to this kind of thing. And he says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I think what he's saying is, humble yourself in such a way that you can be drawn back into the fullness of, of what it's your privilege to be about. Submit to God. 
and resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so, again, there's an awareness that even in this relationship, the devil is, is seeking to find wedges and pull things apart and destroy in ways that, you know, destroy our lives, destroy our relationships. Draw near and he will draw near to you. It's saying if you humble yourself before the Lord, there's opportunity for this relationship to be restored. If you will bend your heart, so to speak, and say, I'm done with that, please receive me back, it said God will draw you in. Now, this is part of the reason that, that I think these are all tied together. In the eighth verse, it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. In other words, part of the stepping away process, it's like if you've been out in the garden, you come in, your hands are dirty, it's obvious what you've been doing, right? And he's saying, get the filth off of you. Don't do this. Clean yourself up. Stop, you know, don't let this be an image of, of who you are. But clean yourself. You know, get away from this sin. Make your hearts pure, you double-minded. And this is an interesting, in the New Living Translation, it says, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. That's how they interpret that double-mindedness. And I take it back to that relationship idea. You, you are dividing yourself. Your eyes are wandering and you're stepping into this and then you're coming back and say, okay, God, I love you. And then it's again off into another arena and going, okay, God, we're together today. How pleasing is that in marriage? It's not there. And it's not good for God either. I, I, I started reading this with kind of an emotional mindset. <laughs> if you know me, that's hard to do. <laughs> but I think this is an emotional passage. There's one other time that he uses this uh, idea of being double-minded, and it says if you lack wisdom, you know, call upon him, but you've got to ask in faith. In other words, you have to set your course because if you're just wandering back and forth, everything gets muddied and, and it doesn't, you won't figure things out. Well, it's the same thing in relationships. If you're double-minded, you do not develop in health in that relationship. And then he goes on and says, grieve, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning and your joy into despair. There is a time when we acknowledge our sin before the Lord to let it go to that next level of mourning what's been done. Where it's completely appropriate to grieve over our actions where we not only say, I know God forgives, and it's that quick trip and saying, please forgive me for today, good for tonight, let's go on. 
And God, in some ways, is calling us to say, I want you to process this thing a little deeper. I want you to take it to the place where you're willing to live differently. I want you to feel the emotion that I feel when I'm grieving. I mean, anytime cheating is portrayed in the movies or anywhere else, there are tears, there are things being thrown, there's, there's emotion involved, right? Anytime, anytime we think in terms that way, some of you have seen it in your own homes, either growing up or, or living it out. You do not confront something like adultery and just, yeah, I got something I want to talk to you about. It hits the very core of your being. And, and so when you're walking through that and we're saying, and James is saying, this double-mindedness with the world and God is like adultery, he takes it into that emotional arena and says, it's appropriate to mourn over this. It's appropriate to weep. I, I used to read through this passage and I go, I don't get those verses, why they're even in there. It doesn't make sense to me. The only way that this gathers through to me is kind of like this emotional awareness and confession that I've been wrong and it's, I need to make peace. The very reason sometimes that sinful behaviors come back to us and keep coming up is because we have not taken them to the level that allows us to truly change, be purified in the Lord. It's interesting to me that in times past, when John Wesley, who was a revivalist that traveled through our country and basically started the Methodist Church, um, they used to have a mourner's bench at the very front of things where people could come and sit and they would either receive the Lord or pray for sanctification, the cleansing of their lives. Uh, if they were backslidden, they would, they would ask for God's forgiveness. But it was, it was a place to mourn what had gone on. And they would, they would practice the presence of the Lord in a way that said, let God process this completely. Where we've gotten very used to just kind of, God is so good and so gracious. Here's the list today, Lord, let's go. You know? And yet, that was a part of our heritage, so to speak, in this country. In fact, um, in regard to like the the Kane County Revival, which happened in Kentucky. And there were groups of as many as 20,000 people gathering together in fields, and they would have different ministers in different areas preaching, and, and people were having powerful emotional experiences in the Lord, and things were taking place that others hadn't seen, but it was a, a group of people that had no experience in the Lord, and suddenly they're aware of the presence of God, and it's manifesting over them physically, but also they are receiving change of life, so to speak. And as they wept before the Lord, transformation was taking place in their very character even. And you had um, 
uh, an ongoing work that went on for many, many years. In fact, um, some of those revival meetings and such carried on for as much as 40 years. It's pretty, pretty amazing. In the 10th verse of James, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In other words, if you come and make confession and your heart is broken, the next question is, in a relationship, particularly in marriage, if I humble myself this way, will I be received back? Because it's, it's up to the other person, right? If we, if we come and we bear our souls and we're making ourselves vulnerable, we also recognize the other person has the right to say no or I'm done with you, I'm sick of this, or receiving you back. We are told in this passage that if we will humble ourselves, he will exalt us. In other words, he will draw us in. Pretty incredible. Now, lest you think that James is the only one that writes this way, I want to jump over to Corinthians. Paul had confronted some sin that was going on in that church. Uh, a man had been sleeping with his mother-in-law, and some of the church said, that's how gracious God is and how wide our circle is. It's okay. And Paul's going, no, that's sick and twisted. Uh, you need to deal with this. And uh, so they, they go after it. And he says, Now I rejoice not because you were made sad, because you were made sad to the point of repentance. In other words, what I brought to you didn't make you feel good. In fact, it, it made you feel bad. But he says, It brought change. For sadness as God is intended by God produces a repentance that leads to salvation, leaving no regret, but worldly sadness brings about death. So he says, if our hearts truly humble themselves before the Lord and there is a sorrow over what we've done or what we've been participant in, and we come before the Lord with that sorrow, he says that will allow us to have peace with God. And he goes on and says, uh, if, you know, I've, I've released this person as well. And he says, the pun and I want to jump over, it says, the punishment on such an individual by the majority is enough for him. So this became a community event in this situation. But he goes on and says, now forgive and comfort him. This will keep from being, him from being overwhelmed by excessive grief to the point of despair. So he says, it's very important to confront this. And it's uh, a, appropriate to say, either you take care of this or you leave. Just like a marriage relationship would be. But then it goes on and says, at the point where this person is sorrowful, then it's time to rebuild that relationship. And he, he says, 
forgive and comfort, otherwise he's going to be overwhelmed, and that doesn't lead to health. He says, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So it's a good picture of, of what reconciliation should look like. Confront the sin, give the option. If the person says, you're right, I was wrong, I need to take care of this, I won't do it again, then there's the opportunity to take that next step and say, okay, we can have fellowship together. And I forgive you, I release you from this. And then the affirmation of drawing back in to full relationship and loving one another. Um, I want to jump over. I had read to you from the seventh chapter about godly sorrow, but I feel like it was set up with the sixth chapter, and I wanted to just walk through that quickly. Paul addresses them, and he says, don't become partners with who, those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? And, and if you notice, he's going to give a batch of illustrations right in a row. And he's saying, you can't just connect yourself to the world and then anticipate connectedness to God. And I know that we could take this as, as a, simply a marriage illustration, but I think it's much wider compared to what James is saying and what's also connected with this. So he gives these illustrations. He says, righteousness and lawlessness, no, they don't work together. Light and darkness, no, those, they just don't work together. He goes, <laughs> he says, what agreement does Christ have with Belial? And some translations say Belial, but he says, God and Satan, yeah, that doesn't work either. But it's interesting to me that that phrase for Satan in this particular case means without profit or worthless or wicked. So what connection with Christ does worthless things have? What connection with Christ does wickedness have? What connection with Christ uh, do unprofitable things have? There's none. So he says, you can't partner up those things. And he goes on and says, what mutual agreement does the temple of God have with idols? So again, he's adding another illustration. You know, idolatry worship and the temple, but he, he moves on and says, we are the temple of the living God. So our lives can't be housing the presence of God and then caught up in idolatry at the same time. Doesn't work. But he goes on and says, I will live among them. He's quoting the Old Testament. I will walk among them and I will be their God and they'll be my people. Come out from their midst and be separate. Touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you. So he says, if you choose to live different, you'll be received by God. Again, think of this in a marriage context. He says, I will be father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. So I will make you family if you choose to live different. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that could defile the body and the spirit and thus accomplish holiness out of reverence for God. So he says, he says you have all this set before you, 
which relationship are you going to choose? You have the opportunity of all these promises in the Lord. What do you want? You can identify even as a closest relationship of, of this life with God. You can identify as a marriage with him. What are you going to choose? Going to choose the marriage with God or marriage with the world? It's your option. There's a verse I just want to throw in out of Acts. It says, God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each one of you from your iniquities. And I, I was watching someone recently, and, and he's going, we often associate blessing with good health and finance and all these physical things. But he says, the very truest form of blessing is what God gives us when he cleans away our iniquity so that we can be with God. That's true blessing. So let's, let's walk through this quickly. When we are addressing unfaithfulness to the Lord, we acknowledge our sin. That's a first step. You know, you, you can't truly take care of it until you say, this was sin. This was wicked. It, it, it isn't enough to just carry that generic, well, I didn't know better, I didn't think about it, I didn't, you know, that's, remember, low-level excuses. Acknowledge it for what it is. Say, this was wickedness. And then purify the mind. Stop the double-mindedness. <laughs> Say, I can't keep living like this, one foot in, one foot out. I have to take a different path. And then actually sorrow over the destructiveness of what's been. Because you, you were part of something vile. It's just that maybe you didn't appreciate how sick it was. And there's an appropriateness of saying, this was wrong. Even let it reach that emotional side, right? And then learn to humbly ask for forgiveness. In other words, there's a, a point of coming back to the Lord and saying, I did this, it was wrong, but I ask you to forgive me and receive me because I truly do want relationship with you. Then finally, anticipate his acceptance. You know, don't, don't fool yourself to think that, well, I've asked him so many times, I don't know if he'll do it now. But anticipate that he's willing to receive and draw you to him. Physical and spiritual adultery destroy relationship. And we have to acknowledge it for what it is. It's appropriate to grieve as a part of our restoration process and to say this was wrong. That's something that's probably in some measure been lost in our current form of Christianity. But it's needful 
for full health. And it may be why God keeps bringing memories back to you that don't seem fully clean until you truly deal with all the ramifications. And then finally, anticipate the opportunity for full union with the Lord. Lord, we acknowledge that you are wondrous and an awesome partner. We also acknowledge that at times we've stepped into wickedness and we've been double-minded and we've done the profane and yet we've been unwilling to, to look at it honestly. Help us to see things as they are. Help us to recognize that if we will turn and humble ourselves before you, that there's the opportunity for forgiveness and restoration and true reconciliation. Guide us into that, we pray. Amen. Amen. May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy what it is to walk in intimacy with you. Fullness of relationship. I ask as each one goes into the community that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. Enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day.